uh, this week, I don't know if this describes your week, but it seems like there's a lot of, a lot of drama this week. Hurricane, have people going crazy? Yeah, not. For some of you, maybe not. I asked my kids uh, when I see them after school, I said, any drama today? Any, anything going on? And they like to share what, what's happening at school and the drama that taken, that's taken place. Um, how many of you have ever been in a drama class? Yeah, oh, all right, a lot of actors in here, fantastic. Uh, if you didn't know, Matt's uh, wife, Nicole, is the new drama director at Swain uh, High School, so that's awesome. So, <laughs> but I, I took drama in high school, and I loved it, right? I, I love movies, I love plays, I love musicals. When I was 10, I was introduced to the movie Grease. How many people love the movie Grease? Yeah, see, I loved it then. I didn't understand all the innuendos back then, but I, I loved it. I memorized every song. I, I knew every line. I still do from that movie. I dreamt of playing Danny Zuko in a musical. I, that's, what I, that's what I wanted to be, right? Senior year, our school drama department puts on Grease, right? It's my chance. I, I didn't even need a script for auditions. Um, but I, I can't tell you today why I didn't try out. I didn't go. I, I, I don't know if it was cause I couldn't sing or maybe, maybe my church thought Greece was too worldly or whatever it was, but I'm not sure why I didn't try. I, I kind of still regret that today, but I did star in my church's Christmas musical called holiday or hallelujah hoedown. Right. I was, I was in that, right. I played the role of the white angel Gabriel. I wore white boots, white denim jeans, white shirt, white cowboy hat. And I I went around the stage with a stick horse and I sang country music about the baby Jesus. Um, and that's also something I still regret to this day. Um, and all, all video proof has been destroyed. So good luck with that. Uh, uh, um, but now I get to take another shot at being in a real-life musical. Uh, A movie recently came out, and maybe you've seen it, and I immediately fell in love with it. I've talked about it before. Um, I went multiple times to see it in the theater. I took my family. I bought the digital copy the day it was released. Who has seen The Greatest Showman? That movie is my, like, favorite movie right now, right? Like, this this last Sunday, the elder team, we met, and we kind of started off the, the meeting by asking the question that if you were deserted on this island... And you only had one movie to, to pick from or in one album and one book. What would you choose? What's one movie, one book, and one, one music album you would take with you? Um, and we kind of went around the room. and It was fun to hear. And uh, uh, Jeff Marr went before me and he shared that that was his, his movie. He said, you know what? This movie, this reminds me of The Grove. And I'm like, you know what? You're right. And, and we'll get into that more. But I want you to take a minute and I want to hear what your favorite movie is of all time. Or if you can't think of an all-time favorite, maybe what was your first movie you saw or, or the last movie you saw. So take a minute. This is what we used to call table talk. Take a minute. You're going to share with those around you what's the, your favorite movie of all time or the last movie you saw or the first movie you ever saw. Take a minute and we'll come back together. All right. So what I'd like to do is I want to read a story. It's a very familiar story. It's a possibly a dramatic uh, presentation of of uh, of a moment in our history, and I want to read it, and I want to talk a little bit about the characters, um, and it ties into where we've been. So we're we're going back to Genesis chapter two, and we're going to start in verse twenty three. The man said, "This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh." The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. 
Chapter 3, now the serpent was the more crafty than any other wild animal the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Verse 4, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, the eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. So whether or not you believe that this is an actual historical account or dramatic interpretation of why things are, or whether this was ancient people and their attempts to explain life and answer questions like, well, why do we have to work so hard to make food grow? Or if sex is so good, then why is childbirth so painful? Or tell me, why do snakes have no feet? And McLaren says, well, in the ancient wisdom of storytelling, Genesis tells us that we are a part of God's good creation. It then tells us that we have a special responsibility as God's reflection and image bearers. It tells us that in order to reflect God's image, we uh, desire the tree of life. Not the tree that feeds our pride so that we think we can play God and judge between good and evil, where it says, God, you know, choose me, let, let, let me be God. Eat from the tree of life and offer life, uh, but offer life to others. Not from the other tree. It's not meant for you, God was saying. That one tree will allow you to be life-giving. The other will lead to death. And so your actions and words could give life or they could take life. And the question was, well, do they celebrate life or destroy it? And he goes on to say, of course, we know what happens. The story of Adam and Eve uh, doesn't need to be about literal historical figures in the past to tell us something very true about us, our history and our world today. We humans have consistently chosen the wrong tree. Instead of imitating and reflecting God as good image bearers should, should do, we start competing with God, edging God out, playing God ourselves. We reject the creator and choose another model instead. A snake, the story says, who seems to represent a subtle and dangerous desire to choose rivalry and violence over harmony and well-being. In our chapter that we're in this week, it's called the drama of desire. And let me read just a bit from this. It says, In Genesis, after feeding on the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve suddenly feel a change come over them. Perhaps they each fear that the other will judge them for, for being different. And so they fashion crude clothing to hide their sexual differences. And when God approaches 
They no longer see God as friend, but as rival and threat. And so they hide from God in fear. When God asks what has happened, they blame one another and refuse to admit their mistake. And soon they face a harder life of pain. Competition, sweat, labor, frustration, and death. East of Eden, outside the beautiful garden that was their home. Later in the story, the two sons repeat the pattern. The older brother, we might say he is more advanced, becomes an agriculturalist. His life is wrapped up in fields and fences and ownership and barns and accumulated wealth with all the moral complexity they bring. The younger brother, we might say, is is more vulnerable or less developed. He is a nomadic herdsman. He can't own land or accumulate wealth because he moves constantly with his herds or wherever the fresh grass is growing. Their different ways of life are expressed in different forms of religious sacrifice. They soon become religious rivals, competing for a higher degree of God's favor. The perceived loser in the competition, Cain, envies and resents his brother. And sometime later, we can imagine Abel leading his flocks into his brother's field. And at that moment, Cain, his resentment simmering, no longer sees a brother. He sees a trespasser or an enemy. He plays God and judges his brother as evil and therefore worthy of death. And Abel soon becomes the first victim of violence and Cain, the first murderer. And so we humans quickly turn from reflecting the image of a creative, generous, life-giving God. With Adam and Eve, we become graspers, hiders, blamers, and shamers. With Cain and Abel, we become rivals, resenters, murderers, and destroyers. The very opposite of God's image. And what do these ancient stories mean for us today? It says they help us know what's broken with our world, something in us, human beings. And they help us know that what's broken in human beings is something in our desires. A couple things from the story that I, I want to point out briefly. One is just a smaller piece. It's just kind of a for your own information. Is the character of the snake, right? The truth is, is that it's, just a snake, right? Theologian Walter Brueggemann says that the serpent is a device to introduce the new agenda in the story, that the serpent has been excessively interpreted, right? Whether the serpent may have been uh, met in earlier versions of the story, it is the in the present narrative, it has no independent significance, but a technique to move the plot of the story, It's not a symbol or Satan or a principle of evil or death. It's just a player in a dramatic presentation. Theologian Miguel de Torre suggested the snake is more like a traditional trickster figure, a reoccurring character in a myth, legend, or folklore around the world. That tricksters are often crafty and cunning, and they use their wiles to get their way to steal food or possessions or to just make mischief for the pleasure of seeing what happens as a result. Tricksters are not necessarily evil, but they often shake up the foundations of the cosmos and raise the consciousness of the others around them. And that's what we see in the story of Genesis chapter 3. See, we often, we, 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 we see the snake is portrayed as a liar in the story. But that's not the role of the trickster. It's not what happens in the story. The serpent never actually lies and it doesn't exactly tell the truth either. But the snake never tells the woman to eat the fruit. But by using questions and cunning and craftiness, it seems to play on the desire that already existed within the human. And here's the second part, which is is the big piece that I want to land on today. 
How many have you ever heard of the idea of original sin? Raise your hand. Original sin. For those that don't, original sin is the Christian doctrine, the condition or state of sin into which each human being is born. This is also the origin or the cause, the source of this state. Traditionally, the origin has been ascribed to the sin of the first man, Adam, who disobeyed God in eating the forbidden fruit, the knowledge of good and evil, and in consequence transmitted his sin and guilt by heredity to his descendants. And that is the story that that much of Christian doctrine points uh, back to to argue the idea of original sin. Look back to Genesis 3. But if you notice when we read the story, there is not one mention of this idea of original sin. But for centuries, we've accepted this idea because the church has made it a part of their doctrine. But it wasn't until over 400 years that Jesus was around that St. Augustine actually even developed the theory of original sin. Richard Rohr says this, that Christians pinpoint original sin in the Genesis story of Adam and Eve eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, even though the phrase is not in the Bible. I think a much truer description of Adam and Eve's experience would be original shame. They hide when God comes looking for them. And when God asks why, they say they feel naked. And God asks Adam and Eve, well, who told you you were naked? The implication is, I sure didn't tell you that. A few, later, a few verses later, we see a very nurturing image of God as seamstress sewing garments and covering the two humans to protect them from their shame. How different than the much later and opposite notion of God's shaming people for all of eternity in hell. The older tradition reveals the deep mystery of transformation that God even uses our shame and pain to lead us closer to God's loving heart. Well, how is God leading us closer to his love? The story says that God comes out looking for Adam. And he says, Adam, where are you? In my whole life, I've heard it as an angry God, right? Looking to to, to punish his kids. Adam, when I find you, I'm going to beat you, right? That's that voice. But that's not the story here. It's more likely that it was the time of the day, the cool of the day, that God and Adam and Eve, they would go for a walk together. They would spend time together. They would talk about their day. And God shows up at their normal meeting place. And Adam and Eve are, are not there. They're, they're hiding and God's like, hey guys, where are you? And Adam, he comes out and his head hung low and he says, I heard you coming and I was afraid. I was ashamed, I was naked. I don't think you love me like this and so I hid from you, God. And this is the part of the story that I missed and those who taught me failed to show me as a kid. Instead of an angry God looking to punish his children, God falls on his knees and he pulls Adam close and he says, no, 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 Adam, who told you that? Who told you to be ashamed? Who told you that I didn't love you? I do love you, Adam. I have always loved you and I will always love you. This is why I told you to not eat from that tree. You weren't meant to feel ashamed for who you are. And then God clothes them, not to hide who they are, but to make them feel comfortable. Not feeding their feelings of shame, but it was in a way to help them feel at ease. 
This is an image of a God who longs for relationship with his creation, who understands their humanity and he draws them in close and he communicates that they have always been loved. You see, in our story of creation, God created humankind in his image. And God saw everything she made and it was good. And that is the starting point that we must have. This is what Richard Rohr would call the original blessing. That God never began to love us, but that God had always loved us from the beginning. That we were made both body and spirit and we were loved by God. He says that we live in a time of primal shame. and We don't seem to know how to escape it. He says, I find very few people who don't feel stupid, inadequate, dirty, or unworthy today. And even though they do not consciously admit that, when people come to me for counseling or confession, they ask it in one form or the other. They say things like, if people knew the things I think, they knew the things that I've said, if they knew the things that I've done, who would love me? And we all have, have had feelings of radical foundational unworthiness, he says. He says, I'm sure they take 10,000s of different forms, but the shame is usually there. And so many people start with the premise that if I behave correctly, I will one day get God to love me or even notice me maybe. And we tend towards this behavioral model. But the biblical tradition actually teaches that first we must see God clearly. And often by experiencing God's mercy for our bad behavior, and then our our right behavior will follow that. But we first must encounter our experience with God's original blessing, the choosing and the loving of us. If you start with original sin or original shame, normally the pit is so deep that you'll never get out of it. And this is why more and more the modern world resents Christianity as any child would understandably resent a foundationally rejecting parent. All the good theology in the world is not strong enough to overcome bad psychology and anthropology. That's Richard Rohr. See, Christianity from the start, in my experience, seems to want to sell a product. And unfortunately, that product hasn't been Jesus, but the product has been salvation. That you were born to sin, that sin separated you from God, and that you need to repent and get saved. That you need to to believe right things about God. You need to repent of your sins and accept Jesus into your heart. But I don't believe that sin was the issue in the garden. And I don't know if it's the same thing today. I believe that shame is the issue. That the serpent in the garden wasn't trying to get Eve to sin. He wanted her to question who she was. He attacked her identity. God doesn't love you, Eve. You're not one of the beloved. And then we fast forward to the New Testament. There's this replay of the garden story. Jesus, the second Adam, he just gets baptized, right? And God speaks over him with that voice that you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus hadn't done a thing yet. All he did was go in the water. Then he goes into the wilderness and the enemy in the story does what? It attacks his identity. You're not the son of God. If God loved you, if you truly were the son of God, you could do all these things. If you would do this for me, then I will give you everything you desire. 
It wasn't a temptation for Jesus to sin, but a temptation to shame himself, to lose his identity. And the story of Adam and Eve wasn't about being naked and sinful in front of an angry God, but naked and estranged from a loving God who was calling out to them, where are you, Adam? Who told you to be ashamed? Who told you that I didn't love you? And God uses the animal skin to cover their shame, not their sin. It wasn't so God could finally be okay with Adam and Eve and covered them up. No, it was so that Adam and Eve could be okay with being who they were, even in their brokenness. And the story of the prodigal son, you remember the, the father comes running down the driveway, wraps his arms around the son, calls for the robe, puts the rings on the finger. They, they kill the fattened calf. He doesn't clothe the son in a robe so that now he could accept him as son. It was to cover the son's shame so the son could be okay with the father. He was always the son. He never stopped being the son. But the shame of where he had been and what he had done made him think that he was unworthy to be a son. If you remember the story, he didn't want to come back to be with the father as a father-son relationship. He wanted to come back and just work to be a hired hand, a servant. Jesus did not die on a cross to make God okay with us. God did not require blood sacrifice of the son to make us worthy to be with God. It wasn't to change God's mind about humanity, but it was to change our minds about God, that there was a God who was always with us, that we were always sons and daughters of his, that even in death, God still loves us and is with us. The journey was always sin, separation, get saved. But I believe now it's more of a forgetting. We forget who we are and whose we are. And the journey leads us to some point in our life where we're awakened and we become aware and we remember who we are and whose we are. And then we return to the Father. Forgetting, remembering, and returning. And church, as we become a, a place that loves the other, that's what we're called to do, love God and love the other, the outsiders. It's not that God has all of a sudden changed his mind about those kinds of people. Jesus told his disciples before he left. He said, the spirit of truth will teach you many things as you have the capacity to handle it. He says, whoever has the ears will hear it. God is teaching us to love people that he's always loved. People who, who believe the shame that we put on them. And the greatest showman a dramatic presentation inspired by the life of Phineas Taylor Barnum and his creation of the Barnum and Bailey Circus and the lives of the stars of that show. And the story, if you haven't seen it, it revolves around a cast of circus attractions, right? That to the, to the people in the town, they're outsiders. They would call them freaks. They were ugly, unwanted, unworthy people who have been taught to live in shame and to hide their God-given image. And Barnum, possibly without the best intentions, he finds beauty in these people. And he wants the world to see them. 
Because he knows that if, if they take the time to actually see them for who they are, that they'll fall in love with them too. It doesn't go over very well with the town, the crowd. They don't like, they don't like the outsiders. They don't welcome the outsiders. They're outcasts. They're not supposed to be here. And there's this scene in the movie where, led by the amazing character of the bearded lady, two of the best creations ever, women and beards. My one woman, beard and beard. But they, were, they come to terms with who they are and the shame that they bear. I want you to watch this piece. Stranger to the dark Hide away They say Cause we don't want your broken parts I've learned to be ashamed Of all my scars Run away They say No one will love you as you are But I won't let them Break me down to dust I know that there's a place for us For we are glorious when the sharpest words want to cut me down I'm gonna send the blood, gonna drown them out I am brave, I am bruised, I am who I'm meant to be This is me, look out cause here I come And I'm marching on to the beat I drum I'm not scared to be seen This is who I'm meant to be. This is me. Look out! 
every time I watch that video, or I hear that song, or I see those images, I get goosebumps. My eyes well up with tears of joy. I had a brief conversation with a couple this week, visiting, they're new to the church, and as they were leaving, they said, thank you. Thank you for accepting us and allowing us to be here. And that's what I want this place to be. A safe place for anyone who is coming to discover a God who loves them. That no matter what the story has been or what shame we've told people that they had to carry around. The ones that have been told by other churches or Christians that if people really knew their past, that they wouldn't be welcome. That God doesn't love them. That they need to cover up so that God would accept them. The outcast, the outsider, the ones who have felt unworthy, they are welcome here. Not as a project, but as people created in the image of God, who through deception of the enemy were convinced to live a life of shame. I want them to hear the story about a God who loves them, just how they are. And even before that, that this God comes looking for them, searching for them, calling them out by name. Who told you to be ashamed? God says, I, I want to help you with that. I'll cover that shame, not for me, but for you. And create a place where there's no outsiders. There is a line from the story in Luke where Jesus is eating dinner with uh, Simon the Pharisee. If you remember, they're sitting there and a woman comes in and the woman is described by Simon as, look at that woman, that woman with, you know, the the ill repute, the the horrible reputation. If Jesus knew who he was, if he were really the son of God, again, questioning his identity, he wouldn't let this woman touch her. Jesus, if you recall, says this to Simon. He says, Simon, do you see her? He says, not do you see the people, what they say about her or what you think of her or the shame that she carries, but do you see her? Because I see her, Simon, and I love her. She is one of my creations, my beloved daughter. Simon, I want you to see her like I see her. Martin Luther King says, hate distorts the personality of the hater. You see, we actually and usually think of what hate does for the individual hater or those that are being hated or the groups that are being hated. But it's even more tragic, he says. It's even more ruinous and injurious to the individual who hates. You just begin to hate someone and you will begin to do, do irrational things. You can't see straight when you hate. You can't walk straight when you hate. You can't stand upright. Your vision is distorted. And there's nothing more tragic than to see an individual whose heart is filled with hate. He comes to the point that he becomes a pathological case. For the person who hates, you can stand up and see a person that that person can be beautiful and you'll call them ugly. For the person who hates, the beauty becomes ugly and the ugly becomes beautiful. For the person who hates, the good becomes bad and the bad becomes good. For the person who hates, the true The truth becomes false and the false become true. And that's what hate does. That you can't see right. That the symbol of objectivity is lost. 
that hate destroys the very structure of the personality of the hater. Now, I know hate is a very strong word, and you may say, I don't hate anyone. Well, the opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. The opposite of loving someone is refusing to demonstrate that love. To get tied up in theology, to get tied up in doctrine and refuse to lead with love. The greatest commandment, Jesus says, is to love God and to love others. Which in turn would mean that the greatest tragedy for Christ's followers would be to not show love or refuse to demonstrate that to others. To not see people as sons and daughters of God, created in his image, people Jesus loved. And if Jesus loves them, then we should too. And it may require letting go of some of our religion and taking hold of Jesus. And I have confidence that this church can do that. And Jesus says to his disciples in John 16, I still have many things to tell you, but you can't handle them now. But when the friend comes, the spirit of truth, he will take you by the hand and guide you into all the truth there is. God, as we close this morning, speak to our hearts. Find us where we've held on to some of our rules a little too tight. We've missed taking hold of Jesus. But God, who loved us and calls us to love others, speak to this place. Send your spirit. Guide us to all truth. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's close together with this last song. Once it's over, you're dismissed.